This is Becoming Christ with your host, Jay Johnson. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Follow and you will know. I'm Jay Johnson. Since everyone is obsessed with politics this week, the time seemed right for another episode of Becoming Christ. As I mentioned in the first episode, to understand Jesus, we must enter his story and view him through the eyes of his first century audience. Seeing Jesus as they saw him requires historical context, the political, economic, social, and cultural factors that shaped Christ's world. Today, I'll examine the political context. Under normal circumstances, I would follow this essay with a bit of commentary on how it affects our understanding of the life of Christ. But the times aren't normal, are they? So instead, I'll reverse the order and note a few parallels between the political climate 2,000 years ago and our present sad situation. First, Israel was firmly in the grip of messianic fever in the first century. Popular beliefs about the Messiah ran the gamut, but they primarily centered on earthly and political hopes for a king who would defeat Israel's enemies and rule the world. When Pilate asked Jesus if he was king of the Jews, Jesus replied that his kingdom was not of this world. Christ rejected the people's desire for political earthly power, and the false messiahs who promised those things ultimately led their followers to death and destruction. Christian, where do you place your hope? Is it an earthly, political deliverance you seek? Second, notice how often the divine king threatens the existence of God's people, from Antiochus Epiphanes to Caesar Augustus to Nero. The Gospels present the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as an alternative to the cult of emperor worship. The charge above the cross was king of the Jews, and the crowd taunted Jesus to come down from there if you're the Son of God. Two of Christ's temptations in the desert were earthly power and the abuse of his authority as God's son. Christian, which king do you worship? Finally, pay attention to the severe factionalism between the Pharisees and Sadducees. More than once, their political rivalry and theological disagreements resulted in bloodshed and civil war. The Zealots appeared in the first century, preaching that paying taxes to the emperor was a form of slavery. Tax collectors stood at the opposite end of the political and social spectrum. They were collaborators with Rome, and their regular contact with Gentiles made them untouchable for observant Jews. A regular charge against Jesus was that he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The fact that Jesus named Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector among his apostles negates politics. Christian, your primary allegiance is not to faction or nation, but to Christ and his kingdom. Never let yourself become confused on that question. With that, let's begin. The historical Jesus, the political context. By the time of Jesus' birth, his homeland of Palestine had been bandied about for eight centuries by successive empires. Assyria, Babylon, 
Persia, Macedonia, and Rome. Assyria wiped the northern kingdom of Israel off the map in 722 BC, as Babylon did to the southern kingdom of Judah almost 150 years later. Both empires followed similar policies to pacify defeated nations. They deported the wealthy and educated upper classes and replaced them with loyal subjects, leaving the poor people of the land in place to serve their new masters. Cyrus the Great took the opposite approach. When the Persian king conquered the Babylonian Empire, he allowed displaced peoples to return to their homelands. So, five decades after the destruction of their temple and the end of the Davidic dynasty, the Jewish exiles were allowed to return home to rebuild their city and their temple. The Babylonian exile came as a great shock to the chosen people. God had seemingly rejected them and reneged on his promise to establish the throne of David forever. The prophets, for their part, interpreted the disaster as God's judgment for failing to remain loyal to him and his covenant. For the next century, the people struggled to rebuild while the final writing prophets encouraged them not to abandon their work or repeat the mistakes of the past. Following Malachi around 425 BC, the land of Israel experienced a century of peace under Persian rule, and it was during this time that the Jewish oral tradition began to emerge. The idea behind it was simple, to prevent people from violating the law of Moses and bringing another disaster down upon their heads, the scribes would build a fence around the law. These well-meaning scholars attempted to produce a ruling on every conceivable question, and the decisions they made came to be regarded as binding as the Torah itself. By the first century, violating a tradition about a commandment was considered the same as breaking the commandment. Interrupting this peace in Israel, a long-standing rivalry between Persia and Macedonia again boiled over. From 334 BC to his death in 323, Alexander the Great conquered Asia Minor, Syria, Egypt, Persia, and the Indus River Valley. Following his untimely death, Alexander's generals battled one another for control of the vast empire, eventually settling into a stalemate and dividing it into four kingdoms, the Ptolemies in Egypt, the Seleucids in Persia, Pergamon in Asia Minor, and the Macedonian homeland. Despite frequent intrigues and incursions by the Seleucids, the Ptolemies retained control of Palestine, which again enjoyed a period of peace for about 150 years. Under the Ptolemy rule, Alexandria gradually became host to a large Jewish population, and the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek, called the Septuagint between about 250 or 200 B.C. Although Hebrew was still spoken and read in religious contexts, much like Latin was in Catholic churches prior to 1964, Aramaic had replaced Hebrew as the common tongue of the Jewish people, and Greek had become the lingua franca of the entire Mediterranean world. The constant tension between the Ptolemies and Seleucids spilled into Israel in 198 B.C., when Antiochus the Great defeated his Egyptian rivals and gained control of Palestine. The stage was set for the next great crisis in Israel's history when Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, or Manifestation, ascended to the Seleucid throne in 175 BC. An aggressive promoter of Greek culture who depicted himself as a manifestation of Zeus, Antiochus IV had little regard for the local religions within his empire. He proceeded to sell the high priesthood of the temple in Jerusalem to the highest bidder, twice. 
He invaded and occupied all of Egypt, with the exception of Alexandria in 169 BC, and then confiscated the temple treasury on the way home to his Syrian capital of Antioch, an act that inspired vigorous protests by the Jews. Antiochus returned to Alexandria the following year to finish what he'd started, but an increasingly powerful Roman Republic drew a line in the sand, literally, and demanded that he leave Egypt, which supplied Rome with grain, or faced war on a second front. Antiochus turned his army around and marched back to Jerusalem, where he took out his frustrations on the city and its recalcitrant citizens. He tore down the city walls, massacred thousands, established a permanent garrison of Syrian troops, erected a statue of Zeus in the temple, and outlawed all Jewish religious practices under penalty of death. Once again facing the loss of their identity, the Jews revolted. Under the leadership of Judas Maccabeus, what began as a guerrilla war eventually succeeded in liberating Jerusalem and the temple, while Antiochus was occupied by a larger conflict in the east. The altar of Zeus was torn down and the temple was cleansed and rededicated, an event memorialized in the Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah. Antiochus died before he could gather his armies and return. For the next 25 years, Judas and his brothers alternately battled and negotiated with the Seleucid rulers, whose empire was slowly disintegrating under constant pressure from Rome in the west and the Parthians in the east. About 140 BC, Simon, the younger brother of Judas, was selected as high priest by popular acclaim, and the Roman Senate recognized Israel's independence as a way to further weaken their Seleucid foes. For the first time in more than 400 years, a Jewish king ruled in independent Israel. Although Simon's grandson, Alexander Janaeus, was the first to formally assume the title King of the Jews, the Hasmonean dynasty from the start ruled Israel as both high priests and kings. During this tumultuous period, three of the four factions that would characterize Israel in the time of Jesus sprang into being. The exact origins of the Sadducees, Pharisees, and Essenes are unknown. What is known, however, is that the Sadducees were almost exclusively priests and ardent political supporters of the Hasmonean priest kings. The Sadducees didn't accept the authority of the oral tradition that had developed in the wake of the Babylonian exile. They argued that only the Torah, the first five books of Moses, was binding on a person's conduct, and they were more agreeable to Greek culture. Both positions put them in direct conflict with the Pharisees. Since a tremendous amount of money flowed through the temple, the Sadducees also were wealthy aristocrats. The Essenes arose in protest to the combination of the offices of high priest and king when an unknown teacher of righteousness led his followers to abandon Jerusalem and its temple as hopelessly corrupt. They established a settlement known today as Qumran near the shore of the Dead Sea where a trove of their writings and copies of the Hebrew scriptures were discovered in caves in 1947. From the available sources, it appears Jesus had no real interaction with this separatist movement. Although debated, the origins of the Pharisees seems to trace back to the Hasidim, or pious ones, who strictly observed the Torah and protested the increasing Hellenization of Israel under the Seleucids. For instance, the high priest Jason, who bribed Antiochus for the title, built a Grecian gymnasium in Jerusalem in 175 BC. In the aftermath of Antiochus Epiphanes' attempt to eradicate Judaism, the Hasidim 
coalesced into a unified front, the Pharisees. Unlike the priestly Sadducees, the Pharisees were mostly a lay movement that the Jewish historian Josephus estimated to number about 6,000 by Jesus' lifetime. Their influence far outstripped their numbers, however, since the majority of scribes were Pharisees. Not only were scribes paid to write documents and keep records in a mostly illiterate society, they also served as de facto local lawyers and judges, entrusted both with interpreting the law and rendering decisions upon it. The Pharisees thus viewed themselves as the custodians of Jewish tradition, and they continued to extend their fence around the law. Ironically, the constant theological clash between the Pharisees and Sadducees led directly to Israel's loss of independence. When Janaeus named himself high priest in addition to king, he was opposed by the Pharisees, who said the high priest was not a hereditary office. Janaeus pushed them too far when during the Feast of Tabernacles, he showed his support for the Sadducees by refusing to perform the water-pouring ceremony, which was a tradition not found in the Torah. The angry crowd pelted him with fruit. He answered with swords, sending in his troops and slaughtering 6,000 people in the temple precincts. The forces of the Pharisees and Janaeus subsequently faced off in several bloody battles that resulted in 50,000 additional deaths, but he didn't ultimately gain the upper hand until near the end of his rule. Janaeus celebrated his final victory by crucifying 800 Pharisee prisoners. By the time his son, Hyrcanus II, was crowned king, the Pharisees wasted no time throwing their support to Aristobulus II in his revolt to usurp his older brother. The inept Hyrcanus quickly lost and fled Jerusalem. He returned with an army of Arabs bribed by his friend and advisor Antipater, the governor of Idumea. Badly beaten again, Hyrcanus unfortunately sought the help of the Roman general Pompey, who was encamped in Syria after destroying what remained of the Seleucid Empire. Pompey settled the Jewish civil war in 63 BC by marching on Jerusalem and declaring Judea Roman territory. He reinstalled the easily manipulated Hyrcanus as puppet king, but the real power rested with Antipater. A little more than 20 years later, Rome was embroiled in its own civil wars. Pompey versus Julius Caesar, followed quickly by Octavian and Mark Antony, Caesar's adopted heir and top general, squaring off against Caesar's assassins, the senators Brutus and Cassius. In Israel, the son of Aristobulus II saw his opportunity. He overthrew Hyrcanus and named himself high priest and king. Since Antipater had been killed collecting taxes to support Caesar's campaign against Pompey, Antipater's son, Herod, fled to Rome to appeal for help. Unexpectedly, the Senate named Herod the king of the Jews in 40 BC, and with the help of Antony's legions, Herod captured Jerusalem and the throne after a three-year struggle. The Hasmonean dynasty was dead, but Jewish dreams of independence were not. Herod the Great was a nominal Jew, but as the son of an Idumean father and Arabian mother, he wasn't eligible to name himself the high priest. He married a Hasmonean princess to legitimize his claim to the throne and elevated her 17-year-old brother to the high priesthood. The following year, he had this potential rival drowned during a party. Afterward, 
Herod-appointed sycophants and diaspora Jews from Babylon and Alexandria as high priests, adding fuel to the popular distrust of the priesthood in Jerusalem. Both the Sadducees and Pharisees at first regarded Herod with suspicion as a Roman king, as well as one with the annoying habit of killing everyone he perceived as a threat. By the end of his reign, Herod had executed his second wife, three sons, a mother-in-law, two brothers-in-law, and just about every Hasmonean with a potential claim to the throne. Both parties eventually grew to hate him. The Sadducees, because he curtailed their power, stacked the priesthood with foreigners and taxed them heavily, and the Pharisees, because he spent lavishly, constructed Greek cities and pagan temples, and disregarded Jewish law. For all his paranoia and cruelty, Herod paradoxically was driven by an obsessive desire to be loved and respected, both by his subject and his Roman overlords. To fulfill that need, he spent vast sums on building projects and expensive gifts for his patron, Mark Antony. After rebuilding the city walls of Jerusalem, Herod added a fortress he christened Antonia to garrison Roman troops adjacent to the temple. His fawning over Antony nearly cost him his life when Octavian, shortly after defeating Antony and Cleopatra, summoned Herod to appear and justify his continued rule. In typical Herodian fashion, he emerged from the meeting not only with his head and title intact, but with additional territories. Soon, Octavian took the imperial title of Caesar Augustus, which prompted Herod to build a city on the ancient ruins of Samaria and name it Sebaste, the Greek equivalent of Augustus. Although Herod also busied himself building a string of royal palaces and forts, his two greatest projects remained. The first was a new city on the Mediterranean constructed to honor Augustus, Caesarea Maritima, which boasted the second largest artificial port in the empire. Caesarea was a thoroughly Roman city, complete with an amphitheater, a hippodrome for chariot races, and a temple dedicated to the emperor. It eventually became the provincial capital and home to Rome's governors, although they relocated to Jerusalem during religious festivals to keep a tight rein on the crowds. Herod's second major undertaking was a massive remodeling of the temple complex, which he hoped would win favor both with the Pharisees, who viewed him as a promoter of paganism, and the Sadducees, who would have a thousand priests employed in its construction. Begun in 20 BC with a great retaining wall that boxed in the top of the Temple Mount to create an expanded level foundation, the entire 35-acre complex wasn't completed until just a few years prior to its destruction in AD 70. Herod couldn't help himself from giving at least a nod to the emperor, though. He installed a Roman eagle insignia above the western gate. Roman oversight of Judea under Herod would best be described as benign neglect. Herod maintained order and kept tribute to the emperor flowing, but upon news of Herod's death, the situation changed dramatically. The disciples of two Pharisees scaled the temple gate and tore down the idolatrous Roman eagle. As it turned out, the news was premature. From his deathbed, Herod ordered the rabbis and their disciples burned alive. He also executed his eldest son, changed his will three times, and detained a number of leading citizens with orders to kill them at his death, which assured the paranoid ruler that the nation would mourn on that day. Following Herod's actual death, protests demanding lower taxes and the removal of the high priest broke out with such vigor during Passover that Archelaus, Herod's primary heir in his final will, 
unleashed his cavalry against the unarmed crowds. 3,000 were slain before order was restored. Archelaus canceled the rest of the festival and sent the pilgrims home. Herod's final succession plan gave Judea, Samaria, and Idumea to the 19-year-old Archelaus and divided the remaining lands between his younger brother Antipas and half-brother Philip. But Augustus hadn't approved this plan, so the royal family sailed for Rome. A delegation of 50 unhappy aristocrats followed hot on their heels to request that Augustus abolish the monarchy and place Judea under the governor of Syria. As many as 8,000 Jews living in Rome held demonstrations in support of their petition. Clearly, the Jewish upper classes were more interested in ridding themselves of the Herods than in gaining independence from Rome. With its rulers absent, Judea again erupted in violence. Varus, the governor of Syria, had sent his treasurer, Sabinus, to Jerusalem to take charge of Herod's estate pending the emperor's decision. Huge crowds of pilgrims descended on the city for the Festival of Weeks, or Pentecost, and coming just seven weeks after the bloodbath at Passover, both sides were on edge. Sabinus blinked. Panicked at the first sign of trouble, he ordered Herod's royal guard to drive back the crowds while the Roman garrison of 500 men secured the temple treasury. This time, however, the crowds fought back, aided by many of Herod's Jewish soldiers who switched sides. Beaten and besieged, Sabinus and the surviving Romans barricaded themselves in Herod's palace and appealed to Varus for rescue. In Sephorus, less than four miles from Nazareth, Judah ben Hezekiah responded to the chaos in Jerusalem by leading a mob to loot the royal arsenal and palace in Galilee's largest city. After arming the populace, Judah proclaimed himself king of the Jews and headed for the hills with his followers, styling himself in the mold of David who roamed the countryside with his warriors before gaining the throne. Simultaneously, two others were competing with Judah for the title. Simon of Perea, a freed slave in Herod's household service, also proclaimed himself king of the Jews. He and his supporters plundered and burned Herod's palace in Jericho, as well as many more homes belonging to the wealthy, before eventually being defeated by Herodian troops. A Judean shepherd, Athronges, likewise declared himself king and, aided by his four brothers, organized a guerrilla army that remained active for years before being defeated. At the head of three legions, Varus marched south from Antioch to Jerusalem. Along the way, he sent one detachment under his son's command to deal with Judah ben Hezekiah, who disappeared before the soldiers could arrive. Sephorus, ironically the most pro-Roman city in the region, was burned to the ground and its citizens sold into slavery. By the time Varus reached Jerusalem, the rebellion itself likewise had vanished. Herod's nephew and an envoy of Jewish nobles met the Syrian governor and explained that it was all a horrible mistake. No one had intended to rebel. They blamed Sabinus, who absconded with the temple treasury as soon as Varus arrived, for instigating the crowd to riot. With the large army and no one to fight, Varus rounded up 2,000 leaders of the non-rebellion and crucified them. Then he sent a glowing report to Rome of his brilliant victory against the rebels. Faced with an apparently widespread rebellion in Judea, the emperor decided to play it safe. Augustus declined to grant the title king to any of Herod's sons, but he did accept Herod's disposition of the territory. 
Archelaus had inherited the bulk of his father's kingdom, but complaints about him continued to flow to Rome, and ten years later Augustus reversed himself. He deposed Archelaus and banished him to Gaul. Judea would become a province governed directly by Rome. Seeking to suppress any Jewish thoughts of independence, Augustus had set in motion a chain of events that in 60 years would lead to exactly what he hoped to avoid, full-scale rebellion and war. Almost without exception, Roman governors ruled Judea poorly. They had little incentive to rule well. The job was a short-term appointment of roughly three years in a hostile environment, so most of them treated it as an opportunity to enrich themselves before moving to bigger and better things. Complicating matters, a Roman governor couldn't be expected to rule on matters of Jewish law, so Rome invested the Sanhedrin with the greatest authority in its history establishing it as the highest court in the land and granting it the right to manage the day-to-day affairs of the province. Composed of 71 members, the Sanhedrin was chaired by the high priest and stacked with aristocratic Sadducees, whether the priestly class or the nobility. A sizable minority represented the Pharisees, mainly because scribes, as experts in the law and recorders of decisions, were essential to the council's function, and most scribes were Pharisees. Although the Sanhedrin was the supreme court, it remained subordinate to the governor, who appointed the high priest, and it couldn't pass the sentence of death. As elsewhere, Rome retained that right in order to protect collaborators from reprisals by local authorities. Additionally, Herod Antipas and Philip the Tetrarch still ruled Galilee in the areas north and east of the Jordan River. Whenever Jesus was there, he remained outside the jurisdiction of the Sanhedrin. As a first step in the transition of power, Augustus ordered the Syrian governor Quirinius to take a census of the population to impose direct Roman taxation on the new province of Judea. Previously, taxes had been funneled through Jewish intermediaries, Herod the Great and his sons. Now, taxes would be collected by the governor as the representative of the emperor. This new arrangement also required payment in Roman coin the denarius, which meant it would enter circulation in Judea. Respecting the Second Commandment's prohibition against idols, Jewish coinage under the Hasmoneans had featured only inanimate symbols such as anchors and stars. In contrast, the denarius of the Roman Empire usually depicted pagan gods, and as an early form of propaganda, the denarius always bore the emperor's image and an assertion of his divinity. Augustus issued many versions of the silver coin, but a typical example would bear his image and D-I-V-I-F, which stood for Divifilius, son of the god, a claim based upon the Senate's deification of Julius Caesar after his death. Unwittingly, Augustus had stirred up a theological hornet's nest. The Pharisees strenuously objected to the census on the basis that only God should number his people. And while the denarius served as a constant reminder of subservience to Rome, an even worse affront in the eyes of observant Jews was the idolatry of the emperor's image and claim to deity on the coin. The offensiveness of the Roman monetary system to a first century Jew becomes clear in view of the fact that one of the first acts of the Jewish revolt in 66 was to mint new coinage, the shekel of Israel, bearing the inscription, Jerusalem the Holy, 
Once again, Galilee stood at the epicenter of trouble. Where previous Messianic claimants had failed, Judas the Galilean and a Pharisee named Zadok succeeded. They garnered enough popular support to launch not just an uprising, but a movement. In the next few decades, their followers, the Zealots, grew numerous enough to be termed by the historian Josephus the fourth philosophy of Judaism, after the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes. Judas and Zadok argued that God was the only rightful king of Israel, and paying taxes to the emperor was a form of slavery. They preached that the kingdom of God would be established only after all traces of paganism and Roman tyranny were rooted out of Israel, and God would certainly help if they actively fought for their liberty. We don't know how Judas died, but his family pushed his agenda to the end. Two of his sons were crucified for fomenting rebellion in AD 47, and his grandson, Menahem, led a force of zealots to capture the fortress of Antonia and Herod's old palace at the outbreak of war with Rome in AD 66. Menahem donned a purple robe and proclaimed himself the Messiah, after which he promptly was assassinated in the temple by a rival faction of rebels. He was the fifth of seven messianic pretenders listed by Josephus. For Israel, the seeds of disaster were planted not by the zealots, whom Josephus blamed entirely for the war, but by the cult of emperor worship that Augustus promoted outside of Italy as a political tool to unite his far-flung lands. While Julius Caesar hadn't been deified until after his death, a precedent that Augustus and Tiberius officially followed, the worship of still-living rulers was an ancient and accepted practice in Asia and Egypt. Indeed, before the Senate conferred Augustus upon him, Octavian styled himself Divi Iuli Filius, son of the divine Julius, which he later shortened to Divi Filius, son of the god, a title that the emperors Tiberius, Nero, and Domitian also adopted and promoted on their coins. Pergamum, the Roman capital of the province of Asia, built a temple to worship Augustus in 29 BC and another for Trajan at the end of the first century. The city was so well known for emperor worship that the revelation of John could refer to it simply as Satan's throne. In nearby Smyrna, the famous Priene calendar inscription calls Augustus a savior and a god whose birth marked the beginning of the good news for the world. It's against this backdrop that the opening words of Mark's gospel, written in Rome, must be considered. The beginning of the good news of Jesus the Anointed, the Son of God. Not only was Jesus executed on the charge that he claimed to be King of the Jews, but his message, the good news, was presented by the gospel writers as the true alternative to the cult of emperor worship. When the early church ascribed the same titles to Jesus that the Roman emperors had taken for themselves, conflict was assured. Accusations of sedition and centuries of persecution were the inevitable results for the first Christians. The Jews of Judea would fare even worse. The narcissist Caligula presaged the coming conflict in AD 39 when he ordered a statue of himself placed in the temple in Jerusalem. With visions of Antiochus Epiphanes dancing in their heads, the people braced for the worst. The governor of Syria anticipated violence and delayed the statue in transit long enough for Herod Agrippa, who befriended the young Caligula in Rome while tutoring a grandson of Tiberius, to visit the emperor and persuade him to rescind his order. 
A rebellion was averted, but not before the Jews of Alexandria suffered through riots, persecution, and the loss of their rights as citizens. Near the end of Nero's reign, 25 years later, the seeds of disaster planted by Augustus found full flower in a four-year war that ended in AD 70 with a temple in ruins and more than half a million Jewish deaths. As a political entity, Judea had ceased to exist. Thanks for listening to Becoming Christ. If you're on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please leave a review. As always, references and footnotes can be found following the written version of the blog. Jay would like to thank the following sponsors for generously supporting this project. Sue Ellen Johnson.